As 2019 nears its end, attention turns to all kinds of forecasts, predictions of what we might expect in business, society, politics, and other topics in the new year. Economic forecasts are the most popular, in large part because this is the time budgets are being reviewed and renewed. So what will happen in the months ahead? Shopping dominates the holidays, but what do the experts think will be the economy's story in January and beyond? We get the answer to that question today from a transportation industry expert. This is Hard Facts. I'm Robert Johnson. Interest rates, public sector investment, jobs, tariffs, and consumer confidence. These and other factors weigh on the minds of economists sorting through the tea leaves that are leading indicators of spending, orders for manufactured goods, and government contracts. Ed Sullivan is Senior Vice President and Chief Economist in the Market Intelligence Group for the Portland Cement Association. Let's start by introducing what you do for PCA, not only to your members, but also to people who don't belong to the cement and concrete industry. We have several different functions. One is to give some guidance in terms of where the market's going to go over the next few years. And many of the cement companies use that in formulating their operating budgets and their overall budgets. That's a critical factor of it, market forecast. The second thing we do is we look at areas in the construction arena uh, where there might be opportunities for concrete to take hold and expand their volume. And the third part, quite frankly, is advocacy support, you know, to help advance some of the agendas that we think are best for the cement industry, as well as the construction industry, as well as for the entire United States. To create that outlook for your members, you've got to survey everything going on in the economy because concrete and cement are part of life like we really don't imagine, right? It embraces everything. You know, just think about you take your first steps out the door on your way to work. Could be concrete steps. Certainly your home has a concrete foundation. The roads, the curbs, concrete bases the bridges you go over, the offices that you work with, it touches every piece of our life. It's that important. And yet, if you look around, it's kind of innocuous. You know, it's almost a, a blind to us at how important this material is to enabling our modern lifestyle. Given that, what kinds of information are you considering on a daily basis for these forecasts? What do you look at? Our forecast process starts with just a general overview in terms of where we see the economy going. We then have to take that outlook and translate it into 15 different construction sectors, ranging from single-family homes all the way down to water systems. Once we've established what that outlook is, then we have to apply what we call a cement intensity, converting construction dollars into cement consumption. And that forms the general basis in terms of how we put forward our market analysis and the projections that we give to our members, of which they make various decisions based on. These days when you raise the E-word, economy, people are starting to think about the R-word recession, 
It's on the lips of the media. Folks are talking about it. What do you think about those worries? If you say something loud enough and long enough, uh, people will adjust their spending habits, whether that be the consumer, whether that be businessman. It can be, I don't want to say a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it certainly can weaken economic growth. PCA doesn't expect a near-term recession. The underlying fundamentals of the economy, namely the labor market and consumer spending, remain extremely strong. And if we would have a shock, it would have to be a rather good-sized shock, and a trade war is not going to do it by itself, and it would have to be accompanied by something else in our mind to push it into recession. We're in an economy now that's 10 years old and it gets a little weak. It, it loses some zip, it loses some vigor. We're more vulnerable. But PCA is still expecting that those two pillars of strength, labor and consumer, is going to pull us through for the next few years. Well, I've seen some comments where you talk about that pent-up demand that maybe was creating an artificial high for the economy. That's all washed out of the system. Now we're living in reality. When you come out of a recession, a recession, you typically forego consumption. You just can't afford it. You don't buy that new car, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then once the economy returns with vigor, when the economy starts creating jobs, some of that postponed demand, called pent-up demand, is released. That's where the economy starts to grow very strong. Now, that's a typical recovery. We really didn't see it a lot on this one. We have had a very tepid growth recovery. And as a result, what you see is the lack of bubbles that can burst and cause a recession. So when we're looking at this, it seems like it's a sustained type of action that can go on for another couple of years. Many of the people I talk to say, Ed, it's got to be coming soon. We must have a recession soon. I want to remind them, Australia has been in a recovery period for 30 years. Recessions don't happen on a time schedule. They happen as a result of imbalances in the economy. And right now, it doesn't seem like those imbalances exist to a degree that can knock off even an aging economy off its rails. You recently released your annual fall forecast. Can you give us the highlights? It's very similar to what we addressed the whole recession issue. We took a look at the aging of the economy. There's no doubt that the economy is entering the mature stage of the cycle. You know, according to an assessment that we make in terms of metropolitan areas, 40% are in late stage recovery. Typically, when that number edges up closer to 60, you could possibly see a recession follow in 18 months later. Not there yet. There's still room to grow. And we discuss the various metrics that people throw around to say the recession is imminent. A lot of those metrics out there that people talk about do suggest a weakness. They do suggest a slowing. They do not, in our opinion, yet suggest a recession is imminent. We also talk about the strong fundamentals. There's a difference between what some of the metrics that people are looking at. They are Wall Street oriented. And we turn it around and we say, let's look at what's going on on Main Street. Labor market's strong. 
we're creating 150,000 net new jobs month in, month out. We've been doing it all year long. Unemployment has dropped. Wages are accelerating. Interest rates are low. Inflation is low. My home values are rising. I have more wealth. And when you combine all that together, the consumer has to be a lot more confident. So what you've got is a willing and able consumer. Remember, that's the second key pillar, that a strong labor market initiates a strong consumer sector. Two out of every $3 our economy generates is consumer spending. So we're confident that these factors that we see going on on Wall Street, while they could eventually change, they could weaken, I think it's going to take some time for the current strength to unravel. We really don't want explosive growth. We want slow and steady growth. And that's what we're seeing. And that's what we continue to see. So for this year, we see the GDP growing at 2.4%. Slows a little bit next year to 2.1%. In part with the help of the Federal Reserve. Then we see a continued decline to one7 And then again to one4 So if you look at this, it fits in with what we see as an aging and slowing economy. Keep in mind that the longer it goes on, the more vulnerable we are to a shock. Now, that shock could be, you know, a trade war or what have you. But right now, when we've done our assessments, in terms of the known potentials that could shock us, we can bear the brunt of a tariff. We can bear the brunt of a global slowdown and a hard Brexit. We can bear the brunt of certain types of uncertainties that we see emerging. The issue is is that if all three of them hit, and it's possible, that's when we have some issues. And that's when you could take this aging, older economy and be at risk of it turning south. We don't see that, though. I want to make that clear. Our forecast continues to show a slowing in economic growth, but never turns negative. Translate all of this into the construction context. What does it mean for cement and concrete? What does it mean for building? What does it mean for all of those infrastructure-related businesses out there? Keep in mind, there are three key sectors that consume cement. There's the residential sector which is struggling not only with cyclical issues, there is some affordability issues that we see going on, particularly in the West, the Northeast, and emergingly in the very Southeast. But for the most part, the affordability issues are not overwhelming and that the low mortgage rates support that. So we see the residential market continue to grow, but at a slow pace. Then you turn to non-residential. Non-residential in our mind the cyclical portions of it are linked very highly to job creation. For every million jobs that are created, roughly 20% or 200,000 jobs are office jobs. That means that as that labor market expands, occupancy rates at offices increase, vacancy rates decline, and that puts a floor in support on rents and leases. So the office market shows an increase in occupancy, an increase in rates, and that operating incomes increase. Now when I go to the bank for funding, I'm met with open arms. That's been a phenomenon that's been working. It's been support, and I can make that argument for a lot of different non-residential sectors. 
But as the labor market starts to slow, some of those dynamics that I talked of will have an impact on the non-residential side. In some markets, the non-residential market has reached its mature stage. It's tapped out. So when we look at non-residential construction, we're thinking that that's going to grow very slowly during the, the next year or two. Then finally, you turn to the third sector, and this is the public. This public sector accounts for about 43% of all cement consumption. So it's an extremely important sector for us. And there's two key issues here. I don't think there's a question on need. We need more schools. We need more roads. The roads have to be in better conditions. We need more bridges, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The issue becomes, well, how do you finance this? So when you look at how you finance this, how it's done, is it comes from two key sources. It comes from the federal government. It comes from state and local governments. The federal government has issues in terms of how it can continue to expand its commitment to infrastructure. Right now, it's being funded by an outdated gasoline tax. In addition, any expansion has to be done in the context that we're adding a trillion dollars in debt every year now. You know, it took us all the way from George Washington to Ronald Reagan before we generated our first trillion dollars in debt. And now we're doing it every year. Whatever federal expansion infrastructure comes, that infrastructure program must pay for itself. I think the second issue that's perhaps even more alarming is that when you turn over to the state and local sources of finance, there's always been a linkage between how the economy performs and the revenues taken in. The better the economy, you have more income tax. People spend more sales tax. The revenues at the state level rise and rise consistently. It's only when there's a recession do those things dip. And the nature of the cost structure on the state side is that there's a lot of entitlement spending out there. You've got to pay for the elderly, et cetera, et cetera. And those costs continue to rise. During a recession, you typically create large state deficits. What we're seeing now is the emergence of these large state deficits, even in the context of steady growth in employment and job creation. And that's scary. Because even though the revenues are continuing to rise at the state and local levels, the costs, entitlement programs, Medicaid, Social Security, healthcare costs are all rising at an even faster rate. That's translating into large state and local deficits. So now you stop and think of how that all translates back to us. Well, a lot of these states operate under a balanced budget amendment. And so when there's a deficit, the powers that be in state government have to make a decision where they're going to spend their money. It may sound a little bit crass, but it comes down to you spend your money on pills for grandma or you build a new road. Guess what? Grandma's going to win every time. And so that comes to the detriment of lesser and lower priority items such as infrastructure. Entitlement programs will win. And so when we start to look at this, this is an issue that we see going forward, and it's an issue that if we're going to see and address growing needs on infrastructure, that we're going to have to come up with some solutions for it.
despite all that, you still have cement consumption going up a little bit next year and also in 2021. That's your projection right now. Yeah, it's very slow growth. So we're looking at, uh, again, about 2.3% this year. It goes down to 1.7 next year and 1.4 the year after. That's consistent with an aging economy. We talk a lot here on this podcast about this reauthorization process here in Washington, you know, this every six-year renewal of federal spending on transportation. Uh, We're in the middle of it now. There's one bill on the street that the Senate put forward. The House is working on one. The election's coming the whole thing expires in the spring of 21. A lot of people, the cynical folks in Washington, think there'll just be a bunch of extensions. Does the reauthorization process affect your outlook as it relates to what people in the PCA are worried about or thinking about? How does all that factor in, or does it? But you know what, Robert? The issue we do is we take our two from our office in D.C. They'll tell us what the likelihood is of these various measures. And then we take their judgment and integrate that into our forecast. Obviously, getting a bill done sooner rather than later would, I think, have a positive effect on the forecast? Absolutely. Sometimes we focus on the near term, and we lose sight on some very powerful long-term issues. There's three key reports that I'm sure you're familiar with. There's the American Society of Civil Engineers, and they rate our infrastructure, and I think they gave it a D plus. They say we need $2 trillion to bring it up to speed. The second one is there's an urban mobility report done by the University of Texas, and they say as a result of our neglect in spending and investing in infrastructure, we're now seeing that the costs to the economy are rising. Congestion is increasing. Wasted fuel is rising. More emissions are occurring because of traffic jams. It's now at $160 billion cost to the economy each year, and it seems to be headed up. The third report, Bureau Census. Population growth is expected to increase by 60 million people by 2040. So we've got a D-plus rating in infrastructure. We've got an urban mobility report that's saying congestion is costing our economy dramatically. It's wasting fuel. It's increasing the amount of emissions into the air. And it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse when you increase almost 20% the population, the drivers, the vehicle miles traveled, the wear and tear you put on bridges. The average age is 68 years old. The wear and tear you put on existing roadways, the need for expansion, those are all there. It's easy to see how the American Society of Civil Engineers comes up to the $2 trillion price tag to make everything work. So when you back off and you look at this stuff, it's in that long-term context that I think you have to place some of the near-term policy decisions that are going on. How do you fund it? Is it just passing it off? Is it just extending it? And it seems like there has to be a recognition that the lack of action is action in the context of growing population demographics. That if you do nothing, 
you've decided to do nothing, and it will have an impact on our economy. It will weaken it. So the question then is, how do you fund it? How do you do it? And they struggle with this. It's easy. The mechanism's in place. It's called the gas tax. And all it's a matter of doing is increasing it for the first time since 1991 to a level that can facilitate better maintenance and expansion of the existing roads to meet future demographics. If you don't do it that way, then you might be able to fix something today, but it will be inadequate to tomorrow's needs. I think the second thing you've got to look at is not only how you fund it, but do you fund it smartly? We can go out and spend it the way maybe we always have, but I think increasingly it's important not just to look at what the near-term costs are, not just the initial cost of putting it down, but how long is that road going to last? With all the increased traffic that we're likely to see, high volumes, it means you must have a very durable road structure, pavement. And you've got to compare the various materials. And what we're suggesting is that a life cycle cost analysis, not the initial, not what you pay upright, but what you pay over the course of a 25-year horizon, that's what's important. That's how you save money. Now, obviously, I'm biased. I advocate for the cement industry. But our studies, I'm also a taxpayer, our studies show that for every billion dollars you spend in paving on a high-volume road, you'll save $130 million over a 25-year horizon. That's 13%. That's huge. That's how much more you can extend that dollar that the taxpayers are putting in. So I think we've got to look at two choices here. How do you fund it? And I'm thinking the easy way is just to increase the gas tax. And the second thing is, is just spend your money very widely. That's the best I think we can do. Those are tough decisions, no matter what the economic condition might be. Uh, but you could see the possibility of nothing getting done if folks start to worry that we're heading into some weaker economy. They, they'll argue that we can't do anything. We should just sit still and let this pass. Do you think there's some danger there? I think that's just the way we look at things. We tend to think that our infrastructure is a cost. It's a burden to us. No, it's an asset. You have to invest in assets to make them work. Keep in mind, if the economy does start to sag, and we don't think that is, but if they do, we've always turned to the public sector to support economic activity. Infrastructure programs during times of economic softness can prop up, create jobs, add support to the economy, can help us climb out of a recession. I think I would almost argue that that's the time you do go and start accelerating the investment in infrastructure. That's it for this edition of Hard Facts, the industry's only podcast with the latest from Capitol Hill, the administration, and the policy community on the issues you follow, transportation funding, resiliency, and climate. Hard Facts is a podcast production of the Portland Cement Association. I'm Robert Johnson.